sgp.net. Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859, or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free, 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line, and as always, we welcome questions you may have as you've been studying the word of God. It's the only book God ever wrote. And today we're examining it. If there's a challenge that you face in your personal life or ministry and you'd like biblical counsel on or a question about God's Word, again, you can call us locally at 525-1859. For our internet listeners, if you want to use our toll-free number, you can at one eight seven seven. The call letters WAGP. 980. Or you can email us here directly into the studio. The email address is tbl for the Bible line at wagp.net. tbl at wagp.net. If you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question. We're happy to receive it however you'd like to give it this morning. Rick, as always, it's great to be here today for the Bible line. It is indeed, Pastor, and I see the lines are uh, lighting up even as we speak. Uh, We'll give them a second to see if any of them are brave enough to step up to the uh, plate and go on the air live. I don't see anybody going on hold, so let's go to our first emailed question. Okay. Uh, They write, uh, this is David from Columbia, and he writes, my brother is a Mormon and has been for over 20 years. After tiptoeing around the issue for many years, I finally spoke to him and asked some questions about the major differences in Christianity and Mormonism. He was very open, but basically said he believed in Jesus and didn't see the big difference. I know that there is a heaven and hell difference because of the denial of the virgin birth, the Trinity, and that Jesus is God. We agreed not to have open debate, but to start with one question at a time by email. I thought this would be better. Would you give me assistance in this by giving me the first question to ask and maybe some advice through this confrontation? Well, it's a great question that David asked here from Columbia. Second uh, Corinthians 11.4 speaks of another Jesus. Uh, some people preach Jesus, just another Jesus, just like Galatians 1.8 speaks of another gospel. Uh, there's only one gospel, and Paul said if uh, we came to you and we spoke a, another message contrary to the one that we delivered, such a person should be a curse. He said even if an angel from heaven itself came and preached another message, let that person be accursed. And so God's word is very, very clear that there's only one message. Of course, I find it interesting that it's the angel Moroni, an angel literally supposedly came to, uh, you know, Joseph Smith and gave him this new revelation. 
But to answer your question quickly, you know, every facet of Mormonism is different from that of historical Christianity. One, they don't believe in the infallibility and the inerrancy of the Bible. Number two, they don't believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. Number three, they don't believe in the deity of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Number four, they don't believe in salvation by grace alone through faith alone. It's a works righteousness. Five, the virgin birth. Well, they've redefined it through one of their latter prophets who supposedly speaks in the same level uh, as their book. And he said that, you know, the father came down in a physical body, had a relationship with Mary, and that's how Jesus came into this world. But that he's not the eternal God equal with the father. So they use a lot of the same terminology. They just mean entirely different things by what they teach. So where do you start with a Mormon? Well, ultimately, it's an issue of authority. Is the Bible true? And they'll try to convince you sometimes that, you know, they are the same. And then when push comes to shove, they'll say, well, it's really not. But, you know, again, in, uh, for instance, in the book of Alma, chapter 7, the Book of Mormon is a little bit of a, maybe a misdefined name because there are 15 books within the Book of Mormon. And then there's uh, Doctrine and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price. So they really have 17 works altogether. But within the Book of Mormon, if you look in the table of contents, there's uh, 15 different books. And you're going to find some glaring contradictions between what's written in the Book of Mormon and what's written in the Bible. For instance, in the Book of Mormon, chapter 7, it says that Jesus was born in Jerusalem. That's what it says. Well, the Bible says by the prophet Malachi, or excuse me, by, <clears throat> by, by the prophet Matthew, who is a prophet and the writer of the first gospel, as well as Luke, that he was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Uh, they both can't be true. The prophet Micah predicted and prophesied six centuries before that the one whose coming would be from eternity past would come to this place called the House of Bread, Bethlehem. And so what I would do with him is I would say, well, listen, this book says Bethlehem. Your book says Jerusalem. They can't both be right. Is there some way that we can discern that this book is authoritative. And that's where I would start with him. Uh, how do we know the Bible is true and that it's been preserved and that it is accurate? And I've written a, um, a book within a larger book uh, by put out by Answers in Genesis. It's, uh, I think it has 16, 17 chapters, and I wrote two of the cha- chapters, one on the importance of the Reformation and the other on how to prove the Bible is true, the uniqueness of the Bible, as it's called in that book. I go through five evidences to show that the Bible is the only book God ever inspired. So that's where I would start with him. And so if you can then uh, have a basis for argument, then you can move from there. But again, what Mormon missionaries will do is they'll say, well, you know, the Bible's been corrupted. Well, has it? If there's any book that's been corrupted, it's been the Book of Mormon, thousands of changes made to made to it. And Walter Martin, Dr. Walter Martin, in his book, The Kingdom of the Cults, does a classic job in documenting the changes from edition to edition to edition that they've made up to the current day Book of Mormon. Uh, they'll say, well, those are just stylistic changes or language changes, but they're not. When you look at them carefully, there are fundamental differences in what they Uh, wrote. And they had to change them because they had so many contradictions within their own book because it was so poorly written uh, as Joseph Smith uh, compiled it. 
All right, great question. Uh, let's go to our live caller who's been wish- waiting patiently. Indeed. Thank you for holding, caller. You are on the Bible line. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Pastor Carl and Brother Rick. This is Brother Talib calling. Hey, Talib. Good morning. Um, I had an opportunity to read your contribution to that uh, that great book, How Do We Know the Bible Is True? And as you preach, you were very thorough and uh, in your insights, and I appreciate it. Um, one question I wanted to ask you is, could you kind of give us a <clears throat> your take? And I think last week you mentioned that you didn't see or have a chance at that point to see that uh, new documentary on the Bible. Right. Um, I watched it again this week, and uh, I think it was actually a taped program from last week. But in any event, they have a commercial in there where uh, Catholicism is preached and, and uh, promoted, and, and uh, it's just a little weird to watch, you know, what this program presents, the Bible, uh, as an evangelical slant, but then to have them come in and kind of dominate the airways with, with all this fantastic stuff they allegedly done. Could you talk about the importance of evangelical um, witnessing and how, and tie that into, you know, our Easter Blitz coming up? just kind of touch on, you know, all Christians being called to witness and to stand up for the true faith. Sure, I'd be happy to respond. Uh, God, when he gave his great commission, he said, go therefore and make disciples. And the word disciple there would be synonymous with converts. Uh, Earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, he gave what we call a limited commission. He said, don't go into the way the Gentiles just go into Uh, to the house of Israel, to the Jewish people. And that was God affirming and underscoring his faithfulness to his promises to the Jew first and then to the Greek, because he had promised uh, Israel uh, certain truths about the coming Messiah. Of course, he came to his own, his own received him not, but as many as received him to them, he gave the right to be called children of God. And so later on, the commission is broadened. And so for the last uh, couple hundred years or so, We call it the Great Commission because it's to all nations. Uh, But the greatness of it, of course, was given the day Jesus mouthed it. Uh, Go to all peoples, all nations, uh, making disciples, making believers. And then you baptize them and then you teach them all that I taught you. Uh, That is command that extends to the entire church. Uh, Jesus said, go into all the world and to preach the gospel. It is true that sometimes people will hide behind certain gifts that they have. They'll say, well, you know, I don't have the gift of evangelism because that is a spiritual gift listed in the New Testament. Uh, So I guess it's not my responsibility. Well, it is. Uh, We all share an equal responsibility, just like you may not have the gift of mercy, but we're called to show mercy. You may not have the gift of serving, but we're all called to be servants. Well, we were all called to do the work of an evangelist. Timothy apparently had the gift of pastor teacher, but Paul wants to underscore his responsibility to do the work of an evangelist. And so God has given us all that responsibility. Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Um, If we're not fishing for men, very simply, we're not following Christ. And really, why wouldn't we want to share the great gospel with people? Well, there are many reasons. Sometimes people fear how people will respond. Um, well, listen, Jesus told us that, you know, they're not just rejecting you, they're rejecting me. And we're told in advance that not everyone would respond. Uh, sometimes people are afraid. Well, I don't know that I'll be able to answer their questions. Well, that's just, you know, pride. 
uh, just say, well, I don't know the answer, but I'll find out. Um, I'm, I'm telling you, there's not that many questions that unbelievers ask that haven't been asked 100,000 times before. In fact, in our course at Community Bible Church called the Discovery Class that we offer every Sunday morning, and it's set up and constructed in a way so that a person can start any week they want. A uh, section is on Christian apologetics, and we deal with the 10 most commonly asked questions. I would dare say that if someone could just answer those 10 questions, they would cover 99% of every question they're ever going to be asked by an unbeliever. So, you know, study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed. Uh, we're all beloved of God. If we know Christ is our Savior, we're not all approved of God. And sometimes our laziness will keep us from being used in God's hand, a workman that he can use. Uh, again, the responsibility to evangelize is given to all people. Paul, when he speaks about motivations for sharing the gospel, he says God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. This is in Second Corinthians 5.19, and he is committed, he doesn't say to me the word of reconciliation, but he is committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we, himself, and all the Corinthians to whom he is writing, and by application, everyone who knows Christ today that's hearing my voice, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So the ministry of reconciliation, the ministry of God committing the word of reconciliation, which takes my witness way past my life, some people use as an excuse, well, I'm going to witness by my life. You know, I'm, you know they'll, they'll say, well, you know, a, a sermon is better seen than heard. And that's a half-truth. That is a half-truth. The, the, the gospel uh, is given not just uh, through a model of a person's life. Someone can look at your life and never become a Christian. You can be the most earnest believer in the world. Uh, I had a friend uh, that we were on staff with together when I served with Campus Crusade for Christ back in the late 70s, early 80s. His name was Larry Poland, and uh, Larry uh, was really a fine Christian gentleman, and his neighbor came up to him one day, and he said, Larry, I, I know there's just something different about you. He he said, I think I figured it out. Are Are you a vegetarian? And uh, it made Larry really think. It rang his bell that day because he was trying to model a different kind of lifestyle, and yet he never verbally shared the gospel. We have a responsibility to verbally share the word of God. Faith comes from hearing, hearing by the word of God. And so no one has ever become a Christian apart from Scripture. No one in any time in human history has ever received Christ, either in a forward sense as an Old Testament saint or in a backward sense, apart from the Word of God. It is true there are times when the Bible was not recorded, but God in many portions and in many ways gave His truth and His plan of salvation. Eventually it was written down and recorded. Uh, but we have a responsibility to share the ministry of the Word. And uh, we, I know here at Community Bible Church we're going to be uh, participating in the My Hope Project in November. Churches all across America uh, will be participating, and what will happen is uh, Christian families will invite 7, 8, 9, 10, 15 neighbors, co-workers, associates, relatives into their home. 
Uh, they'll watch a 30-minute presentation by Dr. Billy Graham, uh, where he will present the gospel. Uh, then they will, in three minutes or less, having been trained, will share their testimony and then invite people to uh, call upon Christ in simple faith. Very simple strategy. It's the last thing uh, Billy Graham felt like God wanted him to do. And so they've been working very hard, very diligently on this. Never been done in the United States, though tried in a number of other countries around the world with great success. And so we're excited about this, a simple way in which Christians can be ministering the word of God. Uh, In more direct ways, we train people about every 24 months at Community Bible Church how to take someone through the plan of salvation. And that's important and it's essential. Uh, We model it um, through our Meet the Pastor meeting where someone wants to learn how to share their gospel. All they have to do is show up on a Thursday night. We encourage them to come with a non-believer and they can see how to present the simple plan of salvation. So it is our responsibility, and uh, we live in a day of lukewarmness, and, you know, the average Christian no longer shares his faith. It's subnormal, really, to share your faith in the day that we live in, and if you start acting normal by sharing your faith, you're considered abnormal, you know, like really different. Wow, isn't he spiritual, or isn't he different? And we're in the first century, it was just a way of life, and we've lost that in this country. Uh, because people's hearts have grown cold and stagnant. Listen, the person you're in love with, you want to talk about him. If you're in love with Christ and your heart isn't cold, you you want to tell other people about Christ. Great question. Let's go to the next one. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980. Or you can email us at tbl at net. A listener in Beaufort says they recently left a church that follows the teachings of William Brannan. Um, well, we've got a live caller. We always give uh, preference to live callers. We'll get back to that question in just a second. But in the meantime, thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hey, Rick. Pastor Brogy. How are you all this morning? Doing fine. Thanks for calling. Yes, sir. I, I heard a snippet of a advertisement of a thing that you did with uh, Ray Nash about his electoral seat that he was thinking about acquiring. And I was wondering if you could kind of give us a little more information about him and the seat that he's taken, because I just heard just a tiny bit of it. Well, whenever we uh, interview someone politically on this station, uh, we are required to give equal time to equal other candidates. And so the very first candidate that we um, interviewed was Curtis Bostick, who's a fine, committed, born-again Christian, very solid in his faith, very uh, sound in his uh, ability to think in reference to the Constitution of the United States. A lot of men put their hand on the Bible and swear to defend the Constitution of the United States, but I fear a lot of them don't even know what's in it and probably have never read it from cover to cover. Uh, so more and more, I ask candidates in terms of, well, you know, what's your thought about Article 14, how it applies to the state or Article 2 or whatever it may be. So we first interviewed Curtis and a number of candidates came to me. Um, uh, Mr. Nash was not one of them initially and asked me for my personal endorsement. And I heard as many as I could. And I knew with the election coming up on March 19th and so many running that I really needed to make a commitment. I think Christians have a responsibility to be salt and light. 
and our nation is falling apart. The hope for the nation is certainly not in Washington, D.C. It's in the church house. But if the church house of America is preaching the word of God and lives are being changed, then that should reflect uh, the way a Christian votes at the booth. And so, uh, of course, Tim Scott, a powerful Christian man, African-American, uh, served in the first congressional seat, and our governor, Haley, appointed him to take Jim DeMint's place. Jim DeMint surprisingly uh, stepped down, and uh, she appointed Tim Scott to be our U.S. senator. And I'm just thrilled uh, that he is in that seat because he is such a solid Christian, born-again believer. That left his seat vacant. I think there was 16 or 17 initially in the field running for that seat. Uh, it's been narrowed down to 12. I did make my endorsement with uh, Curtis Bostick. And so, um, but then Ray also asked if uh, he could come in and interview. And of course, we interviewed him. And he is also a solid Christian man as well. And I told him if Curtis doesn't, uh, you know, there, there'll be a runoff, uh, certainly. Uh probably between our former governor and uh, someone else. And if Curtis doesn't make that cut in Ray Dodge, then I would certainly endorse him because he is a fine Christian, godly man as well. And also, you know, very solid in the way he thinks fiscally, morally, and otherwise. So um, anyway, it's an interesting race. Here's the deal. Here's the final deal. When you take all the air out of the balloon with these, um, little elections that are done uh, off-season, so to speak. It's not a major two- or four-year spot. It's very, very few people get out and vote. Uh, I have voted at the end of the day for some of these special elections. Sometimes I've walked in at 6.30 with the booths closing at 7, and I'm the fifth person to vote. I remember that one time. I thought, I'm number five. You've been here all day, and I'm just the fifth person who voted. Uh, what it's going to come down to is, you know, not— you know, whether uh, it's going to come down to whether people get out and literally vote their conscience. And so while I can't endorse a, a candidate uh, as a church, and I never would, I would never tell our people how to vote. But they ask me how the t- all the time, well, who are you voting for? So I'm not afraid to tell them who I'm voting for. Uh, we would never as a station endorse a candidate. Um, but I will tell people who I'm voting for. So, you know, we have that freedom as Americans to do that very thing. But the sad thing is a lot of Christians, they'll complain and whine about, you know, our national debt and, you know, some of the policies that are being reflected against the family and pro-gay policies and all these other things, and, and yet they don't get out and vote. And it takes enough people in the House and Senate who can verbalize, you know, a Christian worldview. And if that doesn't happen, then someone else's morality is going to be reflected. Morality will be reflected. Somebody says you can't legislate morality. Again, that's a half-truth. Morality will be legislated. It's a matter of whose morality. Will it be the morality of the abortionist who wants to take innocent life Will it be the morality of the person who says homosexuals ought to have the right to marry and adopt children and equal insurance benefits? Or is it going to be the morality of the born-again Christian? Well, a lot depends on whether or not we get out and vote. Anyway, appreciate the question. Let's go to the next one. Yeah, and a reminder that next Tuesday is the election date, so Mm -hmm. um, make sure you do, indeed. Uh, We were talking to that uh, fellow from Beaufort who recently left the church 
that taught the teachings of William Brannan. Uh, he writes, I still have family and friends there, so I started making videos on YouTube preaching the gospel to help them see their unsound doctrines, uh, but it was to little or no success. I found that instead of listening to what I'm saying, people are attacking my character and saying I'm just bitter and mad at the pastor of this church. It's very disheartening to hear this. Do you have any advice on how to deal with loved ones that believe in heretical doctrines? The situation at times feels hopeless. Well, be encouraged. You know, uh, it, it seems hopeless at times, but it's not always hopeless. Uh, just this past Sunday, I baptized a, a former Jehovah's Witness, and Rick, this station has had a tremendous ministry in his life. It was part of the process that God used in bringing him to genuine conversion. And he asked me if I would baptize him, and I said I would love to. You know, now he was raised in a home where his mother uh, was a Jehovah's Witness and, you know, deeply committed to that whole cause. And and so that's all he knew. Uh, and, of course, as an organization, uh, they promote the fact that you shouldn't have friendships outside of the church, outside of the Kingdom Hall, um, and except to, to witness to them, uh, but but not to build relationships so that in no way you'll be influenced by them. And, of course, when he finally renounced uh, his membership, uh, they renounced him and they shunned him. And all of a sudden his world was empty because the only friends he had ever had his whole life were in the kingdom. Uh, But he found Christ because where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. I'm also getting ready to baptize another Jehovah's Witness, a lady next month. And she wants to make sure, you know, it's on the right Sunday where as many of her friends and family can be there and represented uh, but she also has left the whole faith, and uh, it's a false faith. It's a different faith. He- here's the deal. When you're dealing with JWs or someone who's a Brandonite or a Mormon or whatever, very often they're really not listening to you when you speak to them. They're just uh, calculating in their mind a defense, And so what I've learned, I actually learned it from a former Jehovah's Witness when I was in college. And I was kind of fascinated how he had given his life to Christ. And I said, well, what was the turning point? He said, well, a friend of mine was witnessing to me and we never got anywhere. So finally, one day he said to me, I'll tell you what, I will speak 10, 15 minutes uninterrupted. We'll time how long I'll speak. And then you can speak 10 or 15 minutes uninterrupted. Do we have a deal? We won't say anything while the other person is speaking. And he agreed to that. And he said it was the first time in his life the Spirit of God was able to open his mind up to the reality of the gospel and his need to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, This lady that I'm going to baptize, she came to meet the pastor, which is a meeting we have where people don't really speak. They write down their questions, but she sat there for an hour one evening hearing the truth of God's word expounded and how it, what it means to know Christ as your personal savior. She still was filled with questions. I gave her some resources. Uh, her and her husband came in to see me in uh, my office with e- even further questions. And one by one, we tackled them. And eventually uh, she came back a second time to meet the pastor. She bowed her heart and received Jesus as Lord. So Don't be discouraged. People are in cults for one of two reasons. Sometimes the cult was the first one to get them. You know, when people are looking for hope, 
Uh, we're, again, doing the My Hope Project this year in November because people are looking for meaning to life, and very often they'll run down the, the tracks of the world and they'll come up empty. Oh, there's pleasure in sin, but only for a season. And so, you know, the JWs come along and and they offer people hope about a coming kingdom that they can be a part in and, you know, a leader. And in many ways, it appeals to the flesh, uh, to the sin nature, uh, to the self-centeredness of man. But still, it's a hope. It's just what the New Testament would call a false hope. And so sometimes they're the first to be there. They're the first to give them that message Uh, And that's why they're in the cult. Other people are in cults because they've heard the truth, they've been confronted with the truth, and they've rejected the truth. And so 2 Thessalonians speaks of that, of those who've heard the message, but because of their um, rejection of it, they end up believing a lie. And that's modeled in other places in the New Testament. But you take it one point at a time, one day at a time. You love them. You'll never argue anyone into the kingdom of God. You may win the argument, but lose the person. So, again, what you try to do is if you can find one chink in their armor, so to speak, one point where you can just work on that one point. And I remember leading the Jehovah's Witness to Christ years ago, and there are all kinds of things like the deity of Christ and whether hell was real and what heaven was really like and so on and so forth. And we weren't making too much progress. So I, I honed in on one topic is salvation by works or by grace. And we started looking at passages that dealt with grace and he came back with passages that taught what he thought meant works. And we looked at them in their context and it began to raise a question mark in his head. And finally um, I said, listen, if you're wrong on this doctrine, do you think there's a possibility you could be wrong on some other doctrines? And God began to work in his life, and he ended up coming to Christ. So, again, you start with a simple thing. Uh, it's like the first caller today who emailed us from Columbia in reference to his brother who's a Mormon. And I said, listen, uh, start with something simple. Alma chapter 7 says that Jesus is born in Jerusalem. The prophet Micah in the New Testament records that he was born in Bethlehem. They both can't be right. Somebody's right, somebody's wrong. So you start with that issue, and then it becomes a point of authority. Now, with Brennan, he would say the Bible is true, so you're not dealing with that. And very often, when Satan comes, he he comes uh, as an angel of light. He doesn't come saying, well, the Bible's a lie and this and that. He, he's, no, he, he quotes the Bible. Um, so you're not dealing with that issue, but you are dealing with issues of interpretation and issues of context and everything else. So start with a simple issue, hone that issue and God can work and you pray for them because ultimately it is a work of the Holy Spirit, but he uses us as spirit filled people, his life operating through us as we minister to folks. Great question. Let's go to the next one. 525-1859, toll free 877-924-7980. Or email us at tbl at net. And our next caller would like to know if a church has female deacons or elders, and in some cases a woman preaching on Sunday morning, is that a reason to leave the church? It would be for me um, because they've rationalized historical Christianity and biblical Christianity. Uh, the whole idea of having women as pastors is a new idea in the realm of theology. 
there were a few people in the late 1800s, women who didn't really even identify with biblical Christianity, who set themselves up as preachers. At the birth of the Pentecostal movement, you had people saying, well, God called me to the ministry. You know, how, how do you argue with that when you meet some woman and she says, well, God's called me to preach, pastor. How, how can you say I can't be a pastor? God told me I'm supposed to be a pastor. Well, God's will never contradicts God's word. And God's word is clear. And that's why I say it's a denial of historical Christianity because no one saw such a teaching for 1900 years. And really, it wasn't until the 1970s that, for the most part, it began to move outside of uh, Pentecostalism into evangelicalism. But what Pentecostals are very often known for doing, and I don't want to broad brush them and say this is true of every Pentecostal because it's not in fairness to them. But most Pentecostals do put experience over the authority of the Bible. They say, well, I had this experience and therefore it must be true. And then they go in and they try to find a verse that will baptize their theory. Well, I spoke in tongues. Therefore, you know, this must be something that God wants me to do. Or I fell over and was slain in the spirit. Let me find a verse that teaches that. And so, you know, again, God's will never contradicts God's word. We don't put our experience over the scripture. We put it under the scripture. And so what I would encourage you to do is listen to my message on 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 12 to 15. And in that message, I go through all of the passages that the egalitarians in our day use. An egalitarian versus a complementarian person. An egalitarian says men and women are equal, not only in their status before God, but in their roles before God. A complementarian person would say men and women are equal in their status before God, but not in their roles before God, that we have different roles. And there's different levels of egalitarianism and complementarianism. Some people are egalitarian in the church, but they're complementarian in the home. Um, Some are egalitarian in the home and church. Uh, The biblical position is complementarianism in both the home and the church. So the home, the Bible says the husband is the head of his wife. Uh, He's the head of his home. Um, That's what God's word teaches. Egalitarians say, oh, he didn't mean that. Uh, Yes, he did mean that. And um, you can't have two heads. Uh, You have to have a leader. And a child learns to respect authority at school, with the police, with the government, by seeing the whole concept of submission modeled in the smallest microcosm of life. And when that's dissolved, you've got a problem. So some would say, well, I can't argue with that. But, you know, when Paul's talking to Timothy, it's just a problem in his church. No, uh, it's not. Or they'll say that was just a cultural issue like foot washing, but it has no application for today. No, it's not. Paul takes it all the way back to the creation, to the creative order, and then the way the fall unfolded. And he makes it very clear that this is a timeless principle. And then when he gives the qualifications for an elder, a pastor, a bishop, used all of the same office in the New Testament, they don't speak of three different offices, but one, he gives male qualifications. He must be this. He must be that. He must be the husband of one wife and so on. Tell me how a woman can be the husband of one wife and I'll tell you how she can be an elder. Uh, It's just not the case. And yes, I would leave that church. When you have women that don't carry out their roles as women and they take the place of men, you have feminized boys in those churches. 
And listen, uh, there's a growing homosexuality movement, even in the evangelical churches of today. And one of the reasons are so many evangelical churches are so feminized. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't want my children in such a church. No, I would, I would immediately leave and I would go to a church where they respect male leadership and they're not compromising or rationalizing scripture because that's what they're doing. What, what I find so interesting is that the liberal preachers of our day who read, say, the Pauline epistles, they acknowledge that, yes, Paul taught that a woman should not be a pastor. They can see black print on white pages. They can see that that's what the Bible teaches. And now they may say, I don't agree with Paul, or I think he, you know, was a chauvinistic pig. But, um, you know, they can see that that's what the Bible teaches. It's the evangelicals now, under the leadership of Beth Moore and a number of others, uh, Bill Hybels and who are now twisting God's word and redefining God's word. So if you want to join, say, Willow Creek Church up there in, 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 in the Chicago area, you sign a document where you are willing to say, I'm willingly and joyfully willing to submit myself under female pastors in this church. And so if I remember the last time I looked, they had nine pastors in their church, six of whom are women. Uh, it may be politically correct. It may be, um, you know, a way to reach the world by, you know, acquiescing God's eternal values to the world. But it's not the kind of church growth you want, and it's not the kind of models you want for your kids. So, yeah, that would be plenty of reason for me to leave a church. But listen to the message on First Timothy two twelve to 15, because the way you ask this question tells me, that you don't have a deep biblical conviction over this yet, because when you do, you wouldn't even be asking it. But I'm glad you did, because hopefully I can point you in the right direction. Let's go to the next question. All right. Sandy from Okatee writes, "Um, I was divorced from my first husband decades ago for unbiblical reasons. I've asked, and I believe I have been granted forgiveness from God for my sin." My question is whether my second marriage is considered to be adultery, and what am I called to do in following God now? Well, you're you're telling me that um, you didn't have a biblical reason for a divorce, and people, Christian people, sometimes argue over what the biblical reasons are, but in your own mind anyway, you clearly are saying you didn't have a biblical reason for a divorce. Um, And so now you're in a second marriage and you're feeling some, some guilt. What do you do? Well, you deal with it honestly before God. Uh, you can't unscramble eggs. And so, you know, God's word is is clear um, and we can twist it and try to make ourselves feel better. But he says, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who's divorced from a husband commits adultery. Or in Mark 10, again, where there is no exception clause, but a, a, just a, a, a straight on statement about divorce and and remarriage. The Lord said this um, uh, when they ask him about divorce. He says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. So I had a man come to me one time and he had rationalized what he had done. He had committed adultery, uh, divorced his first wife for this affair, uh, got married, uh, ended up uh, having five children with this dear lady, 
uh, he's a really godly man. And he said to me, Pastor, you know, I, I realized that what I did was a direct offense to Scripture. What do I do now? And I said, well, you can't unscramble eggs. You know, you, you, you find yourself in the state that you're in. And you deal with it honestly. You don't rationalize it to your children and say, well, you know, my wife, she was so hard, so hard to live with. You know, anybody would commit adultery on her or this or that. Or You know, you can't rationalize it. You can't say he was a beast or God's word is clear. And it's very difficult. One man, one woman until death separates us. Uh, we say until death separates us typically in the marriage vows, not until divorce separates us. So you deal with it honestly and you receive God's forgiveness and cleansing and what God has cleansed, let no man call unclean. So you don't have to live under the guilt of sin. Now, as soon as I say that, some people will use that as an excuse to do what's evil. Um, sometimes I deal with people in my office who come in and they uh, have had an abortion as a teenager or as a young woman or sometimes men who've come in and they convinced their girlfriend to have an abortion and they felt like they were an accomplice to murder now that they've found Christ and their conscience is regenerated and what they did is highlighted. And and yes, there's forgiveness. What God has called clean, let no man call unclean. But you should never use that as an excuse. You find yourself pregnant outside of marriage and say, well, I guess I'll just go and have an abortion. We'll just kind of sweep it under the rug and nobody will find out. And after all, God is a forgiving God. No, you don't presume on the grace of God. And so as soon as I mentioned about cleansing and forgiveness, because God can forgive all manner of sin, all manner of sin. You know, when the Lord uh, speaks about uh, blasphemy, the Holy Spirit, the unforgivable sin, and he gives those uh, dire warnings about what the Pharisees ha- had done. Um, you know, he says that, you know, blasphemy against the Father can be forgiven, blasphemy against the Son can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit can never be forgiven, neither in this age nor in the age to come. But what I find interesting is, is that that whole dialogue is prefaced by the fact that God can forgive any and all kinds of sin. The one sin, of course, that he can't forgive is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So, you know, receive God's forgiveness, rest in it. Um, don't make excuses for your past. Uh, but God doesn't want you now to get a divorce and go back to your first husband. Deuteronomy 24 forbids that. You cannot do that. Otherwise, God would be sanctioning legal adultery if he allowed such things. Uh, You're where you're at and you move on and you help other people not to make the same uh, evil mistake that you made. Great question. Let's go to the next one. All right. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980 or email us at tbl at net. And Dale in Virginia writes... Is the storehouse in Malachi equal to the church in the New Testament? If so, how does one come to that conclusion? And what about the curse in Malachi? Are Christians under a curse if they don't tithe? Well, you know, sometimes people say that tithing is inconsistent with principles like Romans 8.1, that there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Well, um, Again, when he says this in Malachi 3, Will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me? But you say, How have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings, you are cursed with a curse. 
for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. And they would say, well, listen, if we're under the grace of God, how can you be cursed with a curse? Well, are you telling me that true believers under the old covenant uh, were somehow uh, in a state of unacceptability and that under the new covenant, believers have entered a new state of acceptability in terms of their salvation? It is true there are benefits to the new covenant that no old covenant saint ever realized because Jesus had not yet died in time and space. But people in the old covenant were truly, genuinely saved. Abraham had righteousness imputed to him, we are reminded of in the book of Romans chapter 4. To be cursed with a curse meant that their crops weren't producing. It meant that their animals were not multiplying. It meant their their grapes were falling to the ground before they were ripe. It meant there wasn't enough rain or there was too much sun. And uh, it was actually not a curse in terms of meaning God hated them. It meant just the opposite that God loved them because those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. In, in, in fact, um, when he asks a series of questions all the way through the book, highlighting six major sins, one is that they robbed God. He opens the book with the question, how have you loved us? That's what they asked. They said, Lord, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Here was his answer. Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau And I've made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Jacob, I loved Esau, I hated, as Paul quotes it in Romans 9, comes right here from the book of Malachi. God is reminding the people of Israel that of all the nations of the world, he chose them, he loved them. So to be cursed with a curse didn't mean God hated them or anything else, but it meant God loved them and he was indeed disciplining them. And he does the same today. Um, the second half of your question really deals with, uh, the issue of storehouse tithing. Um, you know, and is there a a basis for it by storehouse tithing? Remember the storehouse in the old Testament is recorded in, uh, where they brought their tithes is recorded in, uh, Chronicles and in the book of Nehemiah was, was the place where, you know, they carried their tithe, which for the most part was agricultural in substance in that day. Um, you know, if you grew a hundred acres of corn and you, you got a yield of 200 bushels, then you'd give 20 bushels, you know, back to the Lord. Um, the storehouse, I believe in the new Testament is indeed the local church. Paul said now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also on the first day of every week, let each one of you put in store, literally, uh, the NAS making it readable says put aside and save um literally the greek it's very wooden uh and it doesn't read smoothly in english but it says put in store and it's interesting that the word that's used here therazo is the same word that's used for storehouse in the old testament there's a greek translation of the old testament called the septuagint and the words are identical Lay that aside for just a second there is no illustration anywhere in the new testament of a person giving uh, his gain to any other place but to the local church. That's where God's tithe belonged, to the local assembly. Now, it is true under Israel that they could give an offering of sorts, and there are many ways in which you could express that. For instance, when you harvested your field, God said, leave the sides of your fields and the corners of your fields unharvested so that the widow and the alien 
there in the land could come and, and glean from that. Now, I suppose how wide your corners were and how fat your edges were would really, in many ways, reflect how generous your heart was. But that was an offering of sorts. But the tithe doesn't belong to Billy Graham or Search the Scriptures or WAGP. Your tithe belongs to your local church. That's where you tithe. Now, God may move you to give beyond a tithe to give an offering. And he might put it on your heart to give it to, you know, a missionary or to uh, a special project in your church to give above the tithe or to some parachurch ministry. But in the broad scheme of things, the parachurch has only been around for 150 years. Uh, Prior to that, it was all local church. And in the New Testament age, it's all local church. Missionaries, they weren't some mission agency out here and Paul says, well, go hook up, hook up with Whitecliffe Bible translators. No, every missionary came out of the local church, and the local church, either individually or with other churches as they cooperated, supported those missionaries. That's how it functioned. That's how it happened. So the parachurch is a rather new thing in the realm of, of church history. I'm not saying that it's it's a bad thing. It's neither biblical or unbiblical. It's abiblical. It's just not mentioned in Scripture. It's like Sunday school. Sunday school isn't mentioned in Scripture. The Sunday school movement has been around for a little bit over 100 years, and today only about 20% of churches even have Sunday school anymore. You call them what you want. Adult Bible fellowships put a different name on it. But the idea of outside of the worship service having a a group, you know, to gather to learn the Bible— um, called Sunday school. It's not found in the Bible. Now, there's nothing wrong about it. There's nothing unbiblical about it. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of freedom. So anyway, I hope that answers your question. Let's go. We've got a couple lines that have been piling up. Let's go to the next question. All right. We've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hey, Brother Brogy. Good morning. Thanks well, for calling. Call, uh, concerning Hebrews 2, verses 6 through 8. Um, is that talking about man, or is that talking about the Son of Man, Christ? Um, I believe it's quoted from Psalm 8. Can you give me a little more enlightenment on uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 6 through 8? Hebrews 2, 6 through 8. But one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that thou rememberest him, or the Son of Man that thou art concerned about him? Thou hast made him for a little while lower than the angels. Thou hast crowned him with glory and honor and hast appointed him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjection all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not see all things subjected to him. So um, it's interesting because when you read Psalm 8, which is... uh, where this passage is is taken from. Let me just go back to Psalm 8 real fast here. And by the way, sometimes when you read the uh, New Testament, quoting the Old Testament, it will read just a little bit differently. Um, It's not because uh, they're misquoting the Scripture. They're just reading from another translation. As I just mentioned with the last question that came in, there is a translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And the Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Just like most people listening to my voice right now don't read the Bible in Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek, the three languages that God wrote the Holy Scripture in, but they read it, say, in English or maybe Spanish, some people, or uh, they read it in their native tongue. Um, Well, so it was with the Jews in Paul's day. Most of the Jewish people had lost their ability to read Hebrew. And the lingua franca of the day, the language of the people, 
was uh, Greek. And that's that was, you know, in a really neat thing in terms of how God prepared the world and the fullness of time. The Bible says Christ Jesus came into the world. There was the Pax Romanos. There was the Roman peace uh, that made it really profitable for the gospel to go out through the world. Uh, there was a road system where all roads literally led to Rome where you could have a means in which to travel and take the gospel and spread it throughout the known world. But then you had a common language. Uh, In the um, 19th century, the international language was French. In the uh, 20th and 21st century, the international language is English. So I can go to other countries of the world, and they almost always speak English. Well, in the first century, the international language was, of course, uh, Greek And that was all part of God's plan in spreading the gospel through the world. And so when you read Psalm 8, it reads just a little bit differently. Um, And he says, when I consider thy, uh, thy heavens and the works of thy fingers, the moon and the stars, which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou dost take thought of him and the son of man that thou dost care for him? Yet thou hast made him a little lower than God and dost uh, crown him with glory and majesty. Now, what's interesting is while God inspired the original Hebrew and Aramaic scriptures, and and by the way, Aramaic was the trade language, the international language in the day that the Old Testament was written. And that's why, like there's some sections, for instance, in the book of Daniel, when a letter is carried, or in the book of Nehemiah, where a letter is given, uh, where it's in Aramaic because that was the international language of the day. And so God had a reason for that. So what God did inspire was indeed the original Hebrew scriptures. Now, sometimes when you go from one language into another, say from Hebrew into Greek, there is some um, ambiguity as to what word you should use. And so sometimes they would use a particular word. And there are some places in the Septuagint where they really gave a a precise rendering. Just like there's a number of different English translations, some that really reflect the original well and some that don't. For instance, uh, Eugene Peterson wrote a paraphrased version of the Bible called The Message. It's horrendous. It's terrible. Um, He goes out, he excises verses that deal with issues like homosexuality and other things. Um, what's interesting here in verse five of Psalm eight, it says, yet thou has made him a little lower than God and dost crown him with glory and majesty. But when you read Hebrews here, it says thou has made him a little lower than the angels. So one is following the Septuagint. The other is following the Hebrew old Testament. So then the question becomes, is the Septuagint at that point inspired? Uh, we're out of time. This is such an important question. I'll tell you what, Rick, mark it. We're going to come back to this, uh, the relationship in Hebrews 2 and Psalm 8. To whom is he speaking? Who is he referring to? We're going to deal with this next time because it's a really fascinating topic of when God can take a translation and put his mark of inspiration on it and the implications for today. God bless you. Have a good day. 